Cyber Nerds. We're here with the founder and CEO of Crown Jewel Insurance, Mary Guzman, on another episode of Scary Mary. Hi, guys. <clears throat> Thanks for listening. Today, I wanted to talk about some of the scary things going on in the cyber world and the intellectual property world as it relates to directors and officers' liability. So I have the pleasure of sitting here right next to my very good friend, Bill Butler, who is a managing principal at Epic Insurance Brokers. He's been dealing with DNO and other types of management liability issues his whole career, and we're just going to have a little chat. Hey, Mary. <laughs> Thanks for coming. It's great to be here. Yeah. So um, I'll start out just by um, throwing a couple things out there. As you know, one of the main focuses of Crown Jewel Insurance is to try to help organizations develop, to the extent that they don't already have one, a full-blown sort of enterprise risk management, front-to-back-end risk management strategy around trade secret assets, or IP in general. But we're focusing on trade secrets because I think that's the one area um, in intellectual property law where organizations really seem to have fallen flat or sort of skipped right over the value of that, you know, of those critical assets to their organization. And in, in doing our research and reading about all the case law that's come about recently, it occurs to me um, that I think maybe one of the next shoes to drop in this area might be that directors and officers are not addressing their trade secret risk in the way that they should be for their fiduciary responsibilities for public companies in particular, um, in that if they don't know what their trade secret assets are and they haven't put a value on them, then how can they make sure that they're being adequately protected or managed? And how can they sort of justify how they're being insured or not insured. And I know that um, there are a lot of potential holes there, but I just wanted to get your take on what you think is the director or board member's role in protecting IP assets and if you think they understand that role. Yeah, no, the quick answer is I don't think most boards fully understand either their role or the the value of those trade secrets. I think um, Boards, companies in general, tend to think about the tangible assets that they can see and 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 put a value on, and in many cases, the trade secret valuation could be even you know as significant or more significant than the physical assets. But boards don't seem to have the you know knowledge or or experience in in um, approaching it from that standpoint. So it's not just understanding what they have, what they're dealing with, and what they need to protect, um, but also their responsibilities as a director of a company in, in, in all of that, in, in, and like you said, in protecting those, asset, those assets like they protect other physical assets. Yeah, and I think um, one of the potential downsides of that, of course, um, there are many, is that they could find themselves in a situation during an M&A transaction, for example, where they sell the company for less than they should have sold it for because they sell that company based on maybe their tangible assets or maybe they are a company who understands and deals a lot more in the intangible world and has a lot of IP, but they really only know the value of their patent portfolio. It seems like a lot of organizations are quick to 
it's it's almost like a race to the finish line. As soon as we're going to develop some cool technology, the goal is to get it patented, you know, and that seems to sort of be the holy grail. And I think people understand patents, um, but a trade secret um, really is is everything that leads up to the moment right before you file to patent something, you know? Right. And I don't think that people recognize that everything's in their funnel for R&D and every business process that they have, because it's not patentable, you know, could be, as you said, as valuable. And they end up selling the company for less value than it's worth. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, that's a kind of a standard DNO thing that happens a lot, where you see shareholder or employee derivative litigation Right. Yeah. I mean, M&A's, M&A transactions are typically a, a very common source of DNO litigation. And um, the valuation, the price that the company is sold for is often at the heart of, of those cases. So um, in this scenario, yeah, it's easy to imagine. And I know there have been cases where the intellectual property assets are undervalued. Uh, and it causes litigation down the road. Um, I think it's. I think it's also another example of the board uh, needing to understand the full scope of their responsibilities in terms of what the company, what they do for a living, how they make their money, where the value of the company lies. And in many cases, especially company these days, a lot of companies, biotech medical device type companies, there's a lot of M&A activity in that area. And and like you said, the patents are what they know and what they're comfortable mm-hmm, with. Mm-hmm. But if they're not looking beyond the patents, they're missing a big part of the a big piece of the puzzle. Right, exactly. I mean, I would think a lot of companies, if they have, you know, a significant patent portfolio, their their trade secret portfolio might be even bigger. I mean, it, it could very clearly be bigger. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing that people don't really think about putting a value on that. The other, the other thing um, that that comes to mind, or one other thing, and putting on my cyber hat for a minute, my scary cyber hat, is um, that um, a lot of times in litigation over the last several years, when there's been a data breach, but more on the personally identifiable information side of things. Um, which is what we've been dealing with in the cyber industry for years and actually do insure very well on the cyber side of things as opposed to trade secrets, which are not insured. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but often when there's a disclosure event, um, whether it's for a, ho- you know, a hotel chain, there's been some litigation around that, um, there often comes litigation around not only were you were you doing what you needed to do to adequately protect the data, you know, which is beyond the the bottom line, which I would say the regulatory requirements, like being PCI compliant, for example, is really just your ticket to the ball game. But it's by no means a get out of jail free card, and you should be doing more. Prudent companies would do more than just being PCI compliant. And so we find that there are allegations of, hey, you rested on your laurels, or you didn't spend enough money on information security because you thought that because you were in compliance with regulatory yeah, you issues, the box. right, check yep. the box, but you didn't go beyond, or either that or following the breach, you didn't know what to do. Right. And you didn't know how to recapture those assets and you didn't know how to respond and those kinds of things. And I think trade secrets are a specific area where in trade secret litigation, misappropriation cases, a lot of times the failure 
of those cases to succeed and continue to move forward is almost solely around the idea that, or the, the notion that you that the company doesn't know what to do. They know their, their assets have been misappropriated, but they don't know how to go about trying to recapture them or trying to bring a suit for misappropriation because they don't have the proof. Um, you know, and so is would there be some coverage under the DNO policy if if it was alleged that they weren't adequately protecting those assets and or that they didn't respond properly? I think what I've seen in in litigation, DNO litigation in general, and especially when intellectual property is brought into it, it's a jumble of allegations, mm-hmm. right? And some some are going to be covered in different pockets of a of a you know a traditional company's insurance portfolio. So you, you will likely have allegations where you'll find coverage uh, at a minimum defense costs and, and possibly um, indemnity um, under a DNO policy, for example, uh, perhaps a cyber policy, ENO. Um, but uh, within that jumble, <clears throat> you're not going to have coverage for uh, trade secret misappropriation. And, and that uncertainty around uh, around that coverage area costs you money because it takes it takes time it takes uh, you know evidence investigation costs um, all of that is part of the litigation process that even if you have a DNO or a cyber or an policy that is responding in some way it's eating up those limits it's eating up that coverage trying to figure out where the coverage exists if you have the certainty of not only the valuation of the trade secrets, you know, so you don't spend time trying to determine the valuation yeah, after going the fact. backwards. Yeah, you already have that. That's done. Um, but then also, is there coverage, and where does that coverage exist? That can take months and and hundreds of hours of of discovery. Uh, that again will just eat into your DNO or ENO or cyber limits. If you have trade secrets insurance, it's clear that you have the you have the value of the trade secrets established and you have an insurance policy that's that is very clear in its intention so it it just makes this very you know likely and common scenario of messy litigation with lots of different allegations that span across many different areas of insurance it clarifies a very important part of it and makes the whole thing go smoother Right, I, I would agree with that. And the the interesting thing is that you know when we talk about DNO allegations and some of the cyber coverage and whether or not there would be a response there, oftentimes we're thinking about liability claims coming in, right, or regulatory investigations. So those are third party losses. But what we have focused on, what we're doing here, is offering a first party trade secret policy that acts just like a property policy, basically. And the reason that we made this a first-party policy is so that if your trade secrets are misappropriated, we can pay you the fair market value of that asset that you've already valued. We know that you're protecting it adequately because that's part of the underwriting process, and we give companies the tools to improve their policies and procedures around protection of those assets um, so that they can, quote unquote, meet the definition of a trade secret, which is a very rigorous and specific definition. If the policy pays on the first party side, um, or we are able to go and recapture that asset, 
um, because part of what the services that we bring to the table is hiring the attorneys and bringing in law enforcement um, to get an ex parte seizure order or something along those lines to try to put the genie back in the bottle. If we're successful in doing that, then there's no more coverage. If we're not successful, we pay the full policy limit, the agreed fair market value. Then we turn around and subrogate, so now we're becoming the plaintiff. We know that XYZ company who hired four previous engineers from our company now works over here, and it's clear that they misappropriated some trade secrets, so now we're going to subrogate against them. The way that we're able to do that quickly and easily is by offering and providing this blockchain platform that gives the evidence. It's all sitting right there at the click of a button, and we and our the insured can evidence easily that the trade secret was theirs, that they protected it properly, that they had the proper markings around confidentiality and propriety of the information, etc. Um, and again, as you said, you know, it avoids millions of dollars potentially and months and months of discovery only to find out in many cases as it currently goes that we weren't protecting our stuff well enough for it to be considered a trade secret. So all this was for naught. This, this, this level of certainty and clarity around coverage is, is, is so important and so timely as well. There's a lot of talk lately um, around parametric triggers, the kinds of insurance programs where, or policies where you don't have to go through you know, months and years of litigation and proving out your claim. It's a, it's a very binary um, yes or no on coverage your product is awfully close to that. It's not quite parametric, but close enough that it's an important distinction as opposed mm-hmm. to the experience most of our clients are very familiar with, unfortunately, which is a property <laughs> claim where, you know, as you know, some of the big, the big, uh, um, you know, Business uh, hurricane mm-hmm. losses and those sorts of things can drag on for months and years. And um, this, this, this certainty, again, it saves cost but it also gives the leadership and the board of the company comfort to know that if they have a problem, it's, it's, it's not going to create a new problem of them trying to get the insurance to, to respond. Right, right. That's the goal. And the other, you know, one other aspect of this is that innovative companies, um, by definition, are going to have trade secrets. But even companies that don't necessarily perceive themselves as being in the business, you know, an innovative industry are going to have business processes, policies and procedures and some things, recipes, client list, formulas, drawings, designs that could be that are their crown jewels that differentiate them from others. Um, So if you are, you know, and with patent trolls and, you know, all the litigation that's out there coming in, coming inward bound, you know, suing you for allegedly infringing upon somebody else's either patent or trade secret, you know, their crown jewels, um, what having this this methodology in place, even though the trade secret policy that we're placing is purely a first dollar first party, excuse me, a first party policy. So there is no liability coverage in it. Having the trade secret examiner in place, this blockchain platform that has essentially earmarked and date and time stamped all the characteristics, um, we only 
capture the metadata, by the way. We don't know what the trade secret is. We don't know what the formula is, but we're capturing the data behind it to show that it's being protected adequately and all those things. So now if you have a third-party allegation that you, you misappropriated, or excuse me, that you infringed upon somebody else's IP, you've got that evidence to go into court and say, no, we didn't. Right. And all you have to do, all you have to do, quote unquote, like it's easy, but is be able to show that it was yours and that it was developed by you and your company and that you've been using it for a year. Prior right. use. You have right. prior use. And so many companies cannot do that today yeah. that they spend millions of dollars again on patent infringement or other infringement defense costs. And, you know, that this sort of just the risk management part around this kind of makes that go away. Yeah, exactly. So you you talked about the you know, the types of industries where this often comes into play. And, yeah, it's, you know, we think of, um, you know, biotech, software, um, manufacturing. I mean, the auto industry has had some, you know, enormous landmark intellectual yeah. property uh, yeah. uh, claims and, and, and litigation. But it's the more, like you said, it's the more sort of common uh, businesses. I, I mean, think of insurance brokers or... Um, Boring. <laughs> <laughs> Been I mean, there 30 I, years. I, I mean, law firms. Um, um, any, any company, um, you know, selling services, the customer lists, that, that information, the information about the company you're with and what their kind of their secret sauce is their, or their competitive advantage, those are, those are trade secrets. And that's, those are the kinds of companies that I think really don't pay attention to that asset. And as you said, it, when they're on the receiving end of that kind of litigation where, you, you know, you, you've hired some people, you've hired a team of people or an individual from a competitor, that gets into the realm of, of um, all kinds of allegations around um, unfair business, business practices, practices. And, and, and the the theft of trade secrets is always going to be part of that. Again, jumbled in with other allegations, but uh, but if you have, like you said, if you have the blockchain, uh, you know, evidence to support what 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 this individual, the team stole from you, you're in a much stronger position in that in that litigation going forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, how does Chick Fil A make their drive through so quick? <laughs> like that's a trade secret, right? Yeah. No one else yeah. can do it. I know. They're yeah. amazing. It's still not quick enough. <laughs> I gotta get I gotta get that milkshake. It's yeah. so efficient though. I know. <laughs> not to mention their recipe. So are you listening, Chick-fil-A? We love you. <laughs> um, Sponsor us. <laughs> so um, the only other question I guess I would ask um, in the realm of of directors and officers is can you just spend a second on the difference between private company DNO coverage and what that might look like versus public company so yeah one of the key differences between public company DNO and private company DNO is the uh, breadth of entity coverage so this is coverage for the organization the company the entity itself and for public companies it's it's usually tied very closely to securities claims. Um, for po- private companies, it's more broad-based. It's, it's actually broader coverage for the entity. And the, the kind of litigation that, that can involve intellectual property, including trade secrets, is often brought against the entity as well as some individuals. So 
So having broad, de- broad entity coverage for a private company is a great thing, but it also means that you're going to have um, you know, a, a, a broader pool of the types of allegations that are then going to be um, litigated. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. And just one thing that I wanted to add um, as a co- as a anecdote, um, most people listening to this, I think by now, realize that the property policies and the cyber policies that people purchase, that organizations purchase, don't cover first party trade secret loss. Uh, and the reason for that primarily is around not that trade secret assets are not covered because they are under a cyber policy. They're just digital assets, corporate digital assets and their confidential information covered under every cyber policy now. It's the valuation that's the problem. So the valuation under those policies will say we'll cover you for the cost to replace that digital asset, but not the value of that asset or the future value of that asset. And so therein lies the problem. And so I think by Structuring this the way that we have, we're you know intentionally trying to fill what I perceive as an 85% gap in the market. And the reason I say 85% is because a lot of the statistics today say that of the S&P 500 companies, 85% of the assets, the value of those assets are in intangible and intellectual property assets, which is crazy if yeah, you think about that, it. That, that's amazing, and I agree. I think most companies and most people don't understand that they're they're focused on covering their buildings and their airplanes and their computers and their supply chains which is all really important stuff i'm not downplaying that at all but the vast majority of the value of companies today is tied up in ip and we as an industry have not done a good job of figuring out how to cover that and one of the many things i love about crown jewel insurance is just the valuation process itself Mm -hmm. i mean the insurance policy has great value, the services, the post, the post-claim uh, process and services are hugely valuable. But that aside, just the process of going through putting a valuation, putting a value on your trade secrets, that alone is incredibly valuable. And I think most companies have not considered it and really, really need to. Yeah. And I shout out to my friend Phil Antoon at Alvarez and Marsal, who's going to lead that charge for us. Um, you know, because again, going back just quickly to the M&A situations that we were talking about earlier, having those assets valued, even if it's an off, even at, if at an off balance sheet valuation of those trade secret assets will put you in a much better negotiating position if and when you want to go sell your company or license that technology. So I think with, with that, um, I'd like to close up and thank my Good friend Bill, um, I get to look at his gorgeous face. First time I've had an in-person interview since COVID all, started. All vaxxed up and ready to go. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so everybody go get your vaccine and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.